Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to gain recognition as a great resource for Uh, small business owners, sales professionals, business leaders of all sorts. Uh, And this is because of the guests. Uh, These are folks who join me. They have expertise in a particular area or areas of business. And they join me to have a conversation where they share that expertise with all of you. Today is no different. My guest today is Aviv Shahar. Aviv is president of Aviv Consulting and a member of the Million Dollar Consulting Hall of Fame. For more than two decades, Aviv has helped leadership teams at Fortune 500 companies, including Hewlett-Packard, DuPont, Procter & Gamble, General Mills, Lufthansa, and Cisco create new futures. Aviv guides strategy and innovation efforts in ways that build breakthrough, collaboration, and dramatically accelerate results. His consulting enables leaders to create purpose-inspired visions and strategies that catalyze growth. Thanks so much for joining me today, Aviv. It's good to be with you, Dan. Well, I am <clears throat> thrilled to have you here. I, we're going to be talking uh, you know, a lot about creating the future and, and leaders. And um, I was wondering if you would share with us your thoughts on how leaders can build high-functioning teams that, you know, the kind of teams that produce strategic innovation? Wow, that's a delicious question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There is so much inside packed in in this question. The first thing I'll say, Dan, that, that after I left the Air Force and essentially decided to get very interested in the prospect of leadership and leadership teams. And I asked myself a simple question, which was what will enable a team to produce breakthrough results, what you call high functioning, high producing team? And and why is it that most teams are not able to produce the kind of radical results that you and I endeavor to help leadership teams produce. And it turned out that to answer that question, I needed to ask another question, which was how do you produce the greatest learning and development yield? 
And the reason that question was framed was because the observation that I stumbled upon was that if you gathered around the table a group of very smart people and you assume that because they're so smart they are going to be able to produce an, exp an exponent of their smartness and intelligence, time and, time and again you'll be disappointed because most teams of brilliant people are as capable as any other group of people in producing collective stupidity. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and collective stupidity um, is a technical definition, has a technical definition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the technical definition of collective stupidity is that the collective throughput is lesser than the individual brilliance of any one individual around the table. Instead of becoming the multiplication of their capability and smartness, they cancel each other, they negate the potential of the collaboration, and they hold each other back. That's the norm rather than the exception. So now we come to ask, why is that? What's the pathology? Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you've observed that, yeah? Uh, well, I have, but what's so funny is this, is this is my next question. Why does this happen? Right, so, <laughs> so, the, so we can answer the, that question in a number of levels or altitudes, if you like, and then lead to the, the answer to the other question, which is how do you produce the, the greatest learning and development yield, which, which is a hint. Okay, so the pathology is that in many places, as you know so well, people operate in a fear-based culture. And as a result, we are defensive, we are not listening to each other. We're not prepared to build on each other because people are more in the mode of how can I survive here rather than how can we thrive together. The pivot from survive to thrive is inherent in the pivot from I'm in this on my own to we are in this together. And only when we can play together, we can truly thrive because nobody, I'd challenge you or anyone to show me one highly successful individual without an extraordinary team, either on stage with them or behind the scenes. Yeah. So any huge success we will consider has always been a result of a huge team effort and if the team was able to transcend the defensive, fear-based environment and to enter high collaboration, high functioning uh, zone and produce breakthrough learning, and then as a result of that breakthrough outcomes, they are the exception and, and they differentiate themselves. So I can pause there, but if you like, I can double click and, and answer the next layer in, inside your question. You, you lead the that conversation. That would be great. That would be great. Well, so, so most people listening to your show probably experienced at one time or another in their life this unique, unique state, unique experience, unique um, what we call flow state. Perhaps uh, it was in a simple conversation with another person. Perhaps it was when they worked on a problem and were able to not only solve it, but produce a, a uh, profound acceleration. So for most people, this was a temporary condition, a temporary state, mostly not so much experienced on the inside, but more observed when they watched a fantastic basketball team or 
So a, a tremendous cast on Broadway delivering a, an amazing show. Somewhere deep inside, we aspire to be part of such a team performance where essentially we build on each other brilliance and we play to each other's strength and we complement each other and we transcend to discover team flow or the, the hive mind of the team. Also seen in murmuration. These are those flocks of birds that if you look in the sky, they reshape and, and fly in formation, as I used to practice formation in the Air Force, but they are much, much more intelligent and much more attuned than any pilot on the planet. And they're able to change direction as though they were one body, even though they're not one body. And in the rare exception, you see teams performing at that level. But what we then fail to do is say, okay, what, what are the conditions? What are the protocols? What is the individual and personal development we each must go through to enter those very rarefied level of performance? But places like Google and, and other leading companies and certainly the, the leading sports teams in, in every field and in the special uh, units in, in the armed forces, they are interested in breaking that, that performance wall. And to me, when I, when I observe all those endeavors, the irreducible part, the core element of all breakthrough collaborations and teams and, and outcomes, the irreducible part is that we become so interested in how we can learn today and how can we improve our craft today and how we can learn from each other and teach each other and coach each other. And that becomes the propulsion more than showing each other how I'm, also, I'm smarter than you or you're smarter than me. And we, we are able to elevate, if you like, on, on the Maslow hierarchy of motivations to actualize our greater potential together. And that passion for learning is what was drilled into me in, in the Air Force, where obviously it's a, it's a life and death situation. You, you want to improve your performance because that will ultimately help you stay alive. Okay. So if I'm hearing this correctly, and I, so I want to do a little check-in, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that when we embrace a passion for learning, it creates in us a desire to collaborate and work with others toward a, a greater good. Correct. Yes, and... First of all, it, that propulsion will forever uh, induce and encourage us to be more interested in how I can learn to be better today than my yesterday's success. Okay. I am a work so in progress. We, we are all a work in progress. Yeah. And that is the ethos of a learning professional where the, the passion for mastery is a never-ending journey. Mastery is not a destination you have arrived at. When I watched the American team in the Olympics, Michael Phelps and others, they would come out of their meet, perhaps they just broke the, the world record, perhaps they just won the gold medal. What did they do after? They go backstage to the, the warm-up in the training space for the team and they watch the replay on the monitor to discover what they need to do better next time. They just, they just won the gold medal. They're <laughs> exhilarated, but their mind is, what do I do next time even better? 
That's what you want in the people that work for you, in the people that work with you. It's can, you, can we all show up to work from a place and with a, with a passion that this is, I'm, I'm not just going to do one job here today. I'm actually going, going to perform three jobs. I'm going to do whatever belongs to my job assignment, whether I'm in sales or I'm in the purchasing group or I'm in an operational unit. I'm going to take care of business. That's my job one. But I'm also going to do job two and job three. Job two is um, while I'm doing my work, I'm going to continually search to find opportunities to improve, to innovate, to do what I'm doing more impactfully, to, to drive greater efficiency and, and greater impact. That's my job too. Oh, and by the way, while I do, while I do job one and job two, I will also do job three. Because I understand that to do job one, deliver, you know, work on my uh, business, that is doing the work and to deliver on job two, which is to transform the work. I have to do job three, which is to transform myself, which I do by continual learning and improvement. Okay. So this really is about continuous improvement, starting with yourself and, and then it sort of ripples out into everything else. Correct. In all the layers of meaning in that, uh, sometime improvement is a word that has been marginalized to incremental steps. And, and that is one of the ways we improve. We tweak a process for it to be more efficient. I'd call this the, the horizontal improvement. There, there is also vertical transformation where you look at a problem that you, you solved in a particular way and you say, well, what's a different way to look at this problem? One that will enable us to completely transform the way we go to market, the way we sell, the way we engage our clients and so on. So you said something um, a minute ago about imagine if everyone showed up to work doing their job, job two and job three. Um, and it sounds to me like in order to get that sort of an environment, the leadership has to behave in a certain way, you know, have a, have a belief system, um, so can you talk some about what, what the leader's role is in helping people show up to that degree? Well, first, uh, Dan, I completely agree with what you're saying. It is a behavioral and cultural and a uh, set of beliefs that expressed in behavior and in the culture that ought to begin from the leader and permeate the entire system. Now, it depends how large of an organization are we talking about and are we, are we talking about a small company or a Fortune 50 company, which is where I do most of my work, where you often deal with leaders of leaders of leaders. But yeah. to, to simplify, the, the job of the leader, I mean, let's just define leadership in, in a simplistic way. Leadership is about getting results through other people. And one of the critical transitions from leading first level of leadership, which is supervising other people, to then leading leaders and then leading directors that lead leaders, is you very quickly realize that your main job is to be involved in shaping the overall vision and mission and strategy. And we can talk about that if you're interested. 
And, and then your job is to actually engage the creative talent and, the, and unleash the potential of the people around you by demonstrating that they are part of the future you're creating with them. You, they are here to help you, to help themselves, to together to co-create the business, the organization, culture. The, the, this is not a transactional thing. I mean, this is, especially in North America, people spend more time with their co-workers than with their loved ones. I remind the people I meet with in my strategy workshops, do you realize you spend more time with your co-workers than with your loved ones? You might as well make it meaningful. You might as well make it an exceptional experience, a place where we thrive because we trust each other. We recognize that we are different. We bring different talents, different backgrounds. Some of us need to have some autonomous space at work because if we don't have that, we cannot do our deep work and others need to talk through the, the thinking out loud to collaborate and we actually need to accommodate and design the work environment to accommodate to different thinking styles, different engagement styles, different, all those. So we need to, to enable people to thrive and to unleash their talent. And so the job of the leader is to shape high level strategy together with the team, connect the dots, and get out of the way and where necessary remove obstacles so that the people working uh, on the her team or his team can really thrive and deliver all that they can. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I, I totally get that. Um, I think unfortunately <clears throat> so many of them struggle with that um, and you you talk about um, reclaiming the human element in the drive to business success can you give us like an example of what that would look like or explain what you know really what that is so that I think there's an awful lot of leaders listening who don't really know how to engage? Well, so it, it begins with actually being able to engage in a real and meaningful conversation. When you talk with your people, with, with people working for you, working with you. And it, uh, what involves in that is being able to step into what I call listening a level three and level four. Listening level one is when somebody is on a conference call, but they're actually multitasking. Multitasking is another name for bogus and flawed and, and listening and engagement. You're not really there. You, you're there until you hear your name and then you wake up into the conversation. That's listening level one. Listening level two is how you see in court the attorney um, leading the witness. They only ask questions they know the answer for. And when you talk about solution selling, some people do the same, but true genuine solution selling, even though solution selling is no longer very effective because since everybody been attempting to do this for the last 15 years, most people don't have patience to engage in solution selling. So that's why outcome-based selling became the, the better way to engage uh, for sales professionals. We, we need to upfront, put on the table, what, what is the outcome that we intend to deliver and then unravel or unpack that um, as we proceed in the conversation. But coming back to the levels of listening, like right now I can tell you have, you have developed the mastery of listening. You're listening deeply because you're asking me the next question in depth based on what I'm offering. So that's listening level three, where you okay. listen to tone, 
and to emotion and to the energy. Listening level four is whole person listening. It's really when you have nothing else in your head, you are just um, witnessing the other person in the deepest possible way. There's a spiritual dimension to it. And one where you are proffering to another person your presence, which is the highest gift we can give another human being, our presence. So first of all, reclaiming humanness at work means we're actually seeing the other person as a multifaceted human being. They're not just a function at work. They come from a background. They have um, desires and hopes and dreams. Mostly they want to learn to understand themselves and they want to contribute in a meaningful way. They want to be engaged in something that makes a difference. They want to do something that will make them feel proud about themselves. Can we please choreograph and create the work environment to allow those deepest aspirations of people to be expressed? Because otherwise they're not going to be here for very long. And if they will, it will more be the case that they feel captive and or they, they, do, they do so from a place of compliance rather than from the place of commitment and passion. So that's one way to think about reclaiming humanness. I was uh, the week before last in New York with a team and we were in New York and we were working actually on, on Wall Street and we were working around the question of creating the future of the organization, the business future, the, the strategic future. And on the second morning, I said to them, you all work so hard and give so much to the company. And because of that, I'm going to take the next 30 minutes in this strategy and creating the future of the organization workshop, I'm going to claim the next 30 minutes back for you, for each one of you individually. And I took them through a simple instrument, simple evaluation tool, where they discover the quality of their individual life holistically. And I said to them, here is my reason. My premise is because you give so much to the company, if we can give something back to you so that you live a fuller, more realized, more fulfilled life, we're doing right by the company. Because if you are healthier, happier, more fulfilled, you'll have, you'll have more to bring to work. So that's, right. me, that's me, if you like, either flying under the radar or forcing um, to the degree that I can the agenda that we must reclaim humanness in the workplace. Yeah, I, I really, <clears throat> I think part of the reason why I, I love this is because it is, it, when it comes down to it, it, it is about people. It, it's not robots. They, they come to work with everything attached. And we have to be able to understand that there are forces at play with each person. In addition to the forces at work, there, there's other things. Like I, I teach a, um, a crew leadership program. And, and what I work with the people on is understanding the sorts of goals that their coworkers have. So everyone always goes to the goals at work, and then we have to expand from there to, okay, what are their life goals? What, what are their, some are good, some are bad, but, you know, where are they? Because all, we have to remember that all of those things play into how they show up every single day. That's exactly right. Or, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Exactly right. People want to know they, people want to know not only that they are successful and that yes, they are able to um, thrive financially. They want to know that they're involved in something that's meaningful. Yeah. And 
and they, they, as I said, they want to feel proud about themselves. And ultimately, sooner or later, people want to journey from success to significance. So we, we have to be in the inquiry of that. What, what is the architecture of significance? It's about, it's about contribution. It's about meaning. It's about um, living into purpose. It's about showing up um, with the fullness of your talent, all those things. Yeah, right. Right. Now, I, I want to take a quick sponsor break, but then I have some more questions for you. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Two Brain Business 2.0 by Chris Cooper and Leading Loyalty by Lena Renee. So visit audibletrial.com slash business growth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with Aviv Shahar about how leaders can create new futures. Um, Aviv, before we went on the sponsor break, you were talking about these levels of listening. And when you were talking about level four, the thought that kept going through my head was, oh my gosh, how hard is it <laughs> for someone to actually be at level four? Yeah, great question. It's, it's hard on two counts. First, you, be, you need to build the practice of actually being able to step into that zone. And secondly, you need to choose when you engage in that way. But the point is that if, if you are leading a large team and you go through the machinations of day-to-day -day business, I'm not suggesting that you can always be in that space. All I'm suggesting is that if once a month you, each person experienced you for 15, 20 minutes in that space or once every, every couple of weeks, you will have created and, and enabled them to be seen, to be witnessed, to be engaged with you in a whole other different way. So as a leader, can you see the other person, not just in terms of what they provide you and the business, can you see them as a whole person? And can you understand and appreciate that they too want to thrive and succeed in the fullest way they, they can appreciate? So if yes, why, would, why won't you enable that? Now the realization is, yeah, you need to, to grow as a human being and as a leader to do so. And building your listening capacity is one of those critical steps. It just it seems like um, it, it, is, it takes an awful lot of intention to when things are moving so quickly, when everything around you is happening and, and there's so many moving parts, to make a conscious decision that you are going to show up. I mean, I, I get how valuable it is. I just think people need to really embrace the idea that they have to be fully on board with doing it and making it a practice. Well, I think you used the key word there in what you said. You talked about being intentional. We have no business showing up to work without being intentional in the first place. Because otherwise we're just running on autopilot. When my son started his first business, he was still um, in the University of Washington. He, he and his partner were here. And the two of them were trying to build a business. And I said to them, when do you believe you are legitimately in business? And I like to ask, create these kind of riddles because it sharpens people's minds about what it is that they're actually dealing with and, and the conundrum they, they try to solve. And so 
what they had to realize is they had an idea. That didn't mean they were in business yet. You can have an idea. You can even have a product. You can even have a name for the business or even a website. You're still not, not in business. I'm saying that because I know many people listening to your show are entrepreneurs. I want to make sure I'm also relevant for them. Yeah. You're not in business even when you, you registered with the state and you have your UBI number or whatever you needed to establish the business. All those are possibly necessary steps you will take at some point. But none of these define and qualify for you to say, I am legitimately in business. I will propose that you're only legitimately in business when you have a customer. And the purpose of a business is to create a customer. I believe Peter Drucker said that. Yeah. And I would propose actually that you are truly only in business when you have your third customer. Because the first customer, if you have one client, for all intents and purposes, it's almost as though you're employed by that company. The okay. terms of engagement may be you, you are, you have a, you know, um, S corporation or, or whatever the legal structure and, and you have one client, but the relationship, if you have one client would often be that it's almost as though you're employed by that business. So you don't have your own business when you have the first client. Let's say the second client was a fluke. So I say, when you have your third client, third <laughs> customer, you are legitimately in business to engage customers and clients. You need to listen attentively to their needs and to their pain points and be able to bring them some profound value that they cannot actually receive in quite the same way elsewhere. So listening is not just about reclaiming humanness. Listening is totally integral to the, the the, the foundation of a successful business. Yeah, I, I'm so with that. <clears throat> I completely agree with you. And I don't think people do enough listening. I think they do an awful lot of talking. I just don't think they do too much listening because I think they think they already know. They've already made up their mind what they're going to provide or what they're going to do. Well, we can't... Um autopilot our way to create something exceptional. Yeah. I don't believe, I haven't seen anyone running on autopilot, achieving exceptional success. I have never been involved in two different projects or two different teams or two different executives and done exactly the, the same thing. Nothing is genericized. Everything is personalized, certainly in, in my business. And, and the premise there is anybody listening, you are in business for one of two reasons. Only one of two reasons. You are in business either because you are mission critical for your clients. That practically means they cannot fulfill, they cannot achieve their core mission without your service. So an example would be, if you are servicing a business that need to uh, have some of the commodities delivered from the other side of the planet um, on, you know, on air or um, on the water, that delivery mechanism, that distribution is part of the mission critical supply chain. And you're either part of that and if you are not mission critical for your clients, the only other way to be in business is to create overwhelming value. Because the third option, it means you are commoditized and you are interchangeable any day of the week. So I am in the consulting and coaching and strategy and innovation development space. So I'm not really mission critical. I, I mean, I am mission critical to people that have worked with me before so they know how transformative the experience is for them. 
But initially on face value, I, I am not because they already have their core operation. So I'm not part of their mission critical ecosystem. So how do I get to be in business with them? I have to provide overwhelming value. Right. By which I mean in some way accelerate what they do dramatically or, or help them, as we spoke earlier, to operate at a higher level. If I don't do that, if you don't do that successfully to your clients, they'll say, well, why would I be here? Let me go somewhere right. else because there is somebody else who is exceptional. So talk to me about radical trust. What is it? Yeah, wonderful question. Radical trust is, it, it's, um, we can use now many words to explain it, but deep down, Dan, it's something we know. It's something we've experienced. It, it's what we experience with people where when we are together with people who share certain core beliefs, who it's more than, you know, they do what they said they will do. It's that we trust their character, which means we trust what they won't do. We trust the, the performance. We trust what they will do. And we trust that they will do whatever it is they try to do with care, with concern, not just for themselves, but for the greater good of the people around. So we, we have likely, if we developed radical trust, we likely were tested through difficult phases. We, we were pressed in, in, the, in a VUCA environment, VUCA to mean volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. We, we were faced with some setbacks and challenges. And we saw each other, to use this term, how we operate under fire. Mm. And we fought for each other, so we now have radical trust. And when we operate with a team like that, like that then we are energized and motivated by the people around us in the most profound way, the team becomes the object of our logotherapy. And I, what I mean by that is obviously Viktor Frankl and the, the, the idea that there is always something else you can look to or look at, a belief, higher, a power, a religious or spiritual belief, but I'm also proposing that the object of your logotherapy can be your team and the, the collective yeah. effort, collective mission that we endeavor to, to produce. And, and when we build that kind of radical trust, we are able to escape collective stupidity and begin to create collective wisdom. And we ultimately are able to unleash the, the greater collective intelligence and insight that's available for us. And the, the biggest thing about this is most things are easy to, to copy and emulate. So the competition is doing something, yeah, we can do it too. Uh, we are doing, we, we are deploying certain strategy. Well, the competition can do that too. But if we are operating at the highest level of collaboration and trust and we are in the zone of radical trust and producing our shared learning and, and creating that rarefied space of working together in flow, very difficult to copy, to emulate that. It, it's, um, it's ultimately the greatest competitive advantage you can produce. It sounds to me like when you were saying that, I was thinking about a sports team that really interacts well with each other. They read each other well. They support each other when they're on the field or on the court. You can feel the energy and the vibration of what they are doing together. You're exactly right. And not only 
do they win? They have fun winning, and we, yeah. all, and we all have fun watching them win. Yes. Because somehow there is something about that unified performance and flow that's so compelling, it's, it's contagious, and we cannot not, in some vicarious way, join their experience and be exhilarated with them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is fascinating. So I, I, have, I have one last question for you. Um, will you explain why you think women will be at the forefront of leadership in the future and why it's a good thing? um okay that's that's a compound question Um, because well so is it a good thing i know that was sort of presumptuous of me (laughs) well let me give you a multi-layered answer we have to put it in context we have to put it in context the the modern corporate creature is about 200 years old well really the, the earliest corporations emerged in the early 1600s. Uh, VOC, the, the large Dutch company, was the first corporation, I believe. At least the first comp- corporation that um, sold uh, joint stocks in the company. And so what we're looking at is 400 years of largely hierarchical and masculine, patriarchal, domineering structures that came out of the Industrial Revolution. And most of what was produced into the the 20th century and led into the 20th century on that front was a mechanistic, atomistic view of, uh, of life and of world because and, and forgive me for just giving a bit of the, the historic context. The Cartesian fallacy, which separated body and mind, that led to the scientific revolution and led to um, maximizing greed and, and profiteering in a way that is disconnected from the environment and from the, the broader prospect of humanness was largely masculine driven. I'm not saying all men were Mm. bad, but uh, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying a lot of the mess this uh, world has experienced has often been at the hands (coughs) of male or man leadership. I think we are now (coughs) into the third iteration of that revolution. <clears throat> with, excuse me, I'm just take a Go second. Ahead. So if you look at the, uh, the first feminist wave in the early 20th century <clears throat> and the second uh, phase of feminism in the 60s, I believe we are potentially after the Me Too movement. Did I mention that? I didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, believe, I believe we are we are sensing into what potentially is the third uh, phase of the revolution, where it's not just about women in leadership, it's about feminine leadership and true women power, rather than women thinking that they need to behave like men in order to thrive. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and by the way, that also means that men can show up at work and thrive with the feminine part of them rather than yeah. be assholes, if I can say this word. Sure. Sure. So, um, what uh, I essentially propose that when we talk about reclaiming humanness, we are broadly speaking about reclaiming the feminine and the and, and the broader integration of the feminine and the masculine as two not worrying capabilities, not worrying forces, but integratable joint forces. 
And I just don't see how <clears throat> we get there without more women in leadership. I see. <clears throat> I, I am so appreciative of that. It, it's so funny. We were just, there was a bunch of women at a book club the other night. We were talking about this sort of subject. And I have found, and I think it's because women haven't really had role models in leadership and business and business ownership, that they developed this false idea that in order to succeed in business, they had to behave like men. They had to be more masculine. They had to be whatever. And it doesn't work because they can't, and they come off in a way that is more detrimental to their their growth than just embracing the things about them that are positive in a workforce, that are positive in leadership, and really showing up um, authentically and in their best possible light. And it isn't by trying to be like a man. Not that there's anything wrong with being a man, just well, that's right. Aren't good at it. So so true. And so women often pay the heavier price mm-hmm. on the militant side and the purist side. It's not the purist, but <clears throat> it's the false premise that sometimes is propagated by women who feel that that's the best way to serve the need of women, which yeah. is to fight for equality mm-hmm. that's reductionist and one that loses the greater value and the greater significance. And perhaps we are in a time that it's not politically correct to say that men and women are wired differently. We, we have data. The, um, the female brain and the male brain are not exactly the same. And guess what? There are great strengths on, on each side. And oh, by the way, it so happened that the female brain has some definitive advantages in the workplace and it is to do with connecting the dots or connecting yeah. with other people and it, it is to do with being able to uh, engage and you know men can develop those capacities very much as well and can be as empathetic and more but to deprive women of their capacity to uh, unleash their natural strength and by the way we should never bucketize all women to one bucket. No, the yeah, different ways right. and styles of leadership. So, but it's not about every woman needing to lean in in the harshest and hardest way. That's not at all the way for women to thrive. And, and if that's the environment that they operate in, then it's an environment that compromises them and is not ready to, to facilitate and, and nurture the best talent. So to, to your initial question, I think that if we, have, if we see more women in leadership, mind you, the, the, certainly in the corporate space and also in uh, global leadership, that's not the first qualifier. The first qualifier is capability and skill and seriousness and maturation of leadership. We now have great examples of uh, immature leadership in mm-hmm. many places in, um, on the world stage. So yeah. I, I do believe that if we are to transcend the, the crisis of the moment, then we're gonna have to see more women in leadership in, in all levels of society it, certainly in business, certainly in the, in the political arena, and, and um, every other sector. Well, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. I, it's so interesting for me, because I'm, I'm, I would say that in my upbringing, my father was more of an influence than my mother. And I, when the first time Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House, a friend of mine, um, emailed me and, you know, the subject line was Madam Speaker. And she said in her email, isn't it so great that a woman is uh, the, the 
Speaker of the House. And at the time, I wasn't a big fan of Nancy Pelosi, and I said, no, it would be great if a qualified one was. So I'm not getting into politics here, but, but just to speak to your point that it isn't just about being a woman. It's about being qualified for the job. And, and okay, so if you're a woman, it doesn't disqualify you from the job of leadership. That's exactly right. And, and let me, whilst we are on topic, also address the other side of the equation. Because I have been with a group of only men in the room. And when a group of men is able to transcend the the uh, rivalrous tone and, and the natural who is the alpha in the room mm-hmm. and enter a shared collaborative space, that group of men can produce something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I will say that they were prepared to embrace the, the higher feminine part of themselves because that's always there in potential. Right. Yeah, that's so, great. And that's, so rather, that's a great so rather than addressing those as two competing or warring uh-huh. genders, can we recognize that we have two, two energies, two forces, two principles that can be integrated in, in each and every one of us. And we actually need those two ways of showing up, those two forces to produce success yeah. and to produce anything. And by the way, for sure, to produce life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes, I am totally on board with that. Now, of course, the, the, of course, the the great uh, mothers' council of the Iroquois nation knew all that many years ago. So we're not inventing anything radically new here. We just need to reclaim <laughs> uh, ancient wisdom. Yes, yes. Isn't that always the way, though? I, it's not like any of this is new. It's just we lost it somewhere. I guess in the industrial revolution. I'm not quite sure, but it seems like. The older, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, civilizations sort of had it figured out, a lot of them. They, they, they were more in tune to the universe and how we all play uh, a significant role, regardless of <clears throat> gender or anything else. You know, I know we're running out of time, but I'll, I'll just quickly say the following. Mm-hmm. In... In the stock market, they like to talk about the eight-year cycle, and sometime we talk about the 40-year cycle, and also the 80-year cycle. And we possibly are converging on all those cycles, but also the 200-year cycle, which is the paradigm that essentially was fashioned in the Industrial Revolution. And some of that is, is coming to a point if we are to transcend all that... Um, you know, all this complex challenges that's on our global plate. Something to develop further on a different conversation, but uh, just to seed this idea. Yeah, that's great. And we should, because I cannot begin to tell you how much I have enjoyed this conversation with you. I am just thrilled that we got to spend this time and we will have to do it again uh, because uh, it's, it's just incredibly valuable uh, for me. And so I'm assuming for the listeners too. <laughs> so. Speaking of the listeners, will you tell them how they can find you and, and uh, you know, get in touch if they need and want to, please? I would, and I, I want to leave them first with one simple phrase as a gift to internalize. There is always more. There are always more options. People often, when they struggle with something, they think, oh, this is my one option. No. There are always more options. That's a practice we developed here in our um, business and in our family and perhaps something to develop further. So I just wanted to first uh, leave them with that, with something practical and concrete. That's great. They can find me on avivconsulting.com. The name of the book, which they can find on, on Amazon and Audible, is Create New Futures, 
They can find me on LinkedIn and all other uh, social media with my name, Aviv Shahar and Aviv Consulting. And looking forward to uh, continue the conversation. Excellent. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you. This, this was just uh, a wonderful episode uh, with a lot of really um, valuable, rich content. I would also like to thank our sponsor. If you would like to get a free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook, you can get a Vives book there. Uh, please go to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Full send with the driver? Check. Piercing iron through the wind? Check. Low checker, high spinner, flop to a tight pin? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better for them all. The all-new TP5 and 5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern, engineered for more distance, more control around the green, and better stability in the wind, it's the hottest tour ball in golf. So no matter what shot you face, there's one ball that's better for all. The TP5 and 5X from TaylorMade. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.